1: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, September 28th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a Mississippi university recognizes the man who integrated it. Then, the latest on hundreds of lawsuits over lead exposure that have piled up against the city and state leadership in Mississippi. Plus, looking back on a historic sit-in at Delta State University. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This Saturday, October 1st, marks the 60th anniversary of the integration of the University of Mississippi. And beginning today, the school will honor the contributions and legacy of James Meredith with a week of series of events panel discussions, lectures, and exhibits, and it will extend throughout the year. Meredith became the first African-American man to enroll at the University of Mississippi in 1962. The events surrounding integration have been among the most significant in the institution's history and cemented Meredith as one of the key figures of the American Civil Rights Movement. He will speak today at his alma mater. Sean Boda Mead is the Vice Chancellor for Diversity and Community Engagement at UM. She says helping to coordinate this celebration brought her closer to the Meredith family.
0: It's just really been fascinating for me to get to know Mr. Meredith, to hear in his own words what his experiences were like. Obviously, were not very pleasant, but, you know, one of the things that I've just been astounded in hearing him say was that You know he was at full peace. He wasn't there. He wasn't afraid. He was here, you know, on a mission, and he wasn't going to allow anything to stop that mission. He um, was an avid reader. I think he spent a lot of time in the library. But one of the there's there's an image that I saw recently where he was getting into his car. He had a book, a a handful of books, um, but he he just left the library. His his car window was shot up or broke maybe not I'm sorry maybe not shot up but at least someone had maybe broken his window maybe it was a brick I don't I don't want to speculate into what happened but the window was certainly broken um but he still had his his big handful of books um leaving the library and so I think just that incredible persistence um and perseverance that he was able to demonstrate in the midst of you know a very unwelcoming environment overall um, and so that's really been um, my observation and, and what I've seen in terms of my interactions with him and the stories that I that he shared with me um, since we've been planning and working together over the last year.
1: What do you see as the challenges for a major university like the University of Mississippi dealing with integration, especially in an environment that we have now that is so politicized? hmm
0: um, you know what I will say is that it, it's a, it's part of our history. Um, it, it was who we were in 1962. I uh, I'm, I'm I am proud and, and to say that that's no longer who we are as a university. In 1960, it was a university that stood in the uh, the way of progress. It was a university that did not want to allow um, a, a you know, an African-American student to enroll. And not only just, I think, even beyond the university, the state itself, um, you know, resisted that change. Um, And today that is no longer who we are, you know, as a university, a university that really believes in access and has an access mission and um, have programs and initiatives in place to support students from all backgrounds, and particularly students from low income and first generation students. Um, and so that you know, for really to ensure that access is available um, to all students, particularly in the state of Mississippi, uh, from all backgrounds. And so that's so that's where I'm saying we we that is who the university was in 1962, right? That a university that did not was not welcoming to its first African American student, um, to now being a university where all students are welcomed and. Um, and, are, and are valued members of our community where we've had African-American students for generations now to come to the university and not only, you know, just earn a degree here but have thrived in, their, in during their time here, have broken barriers themselves in terms of becoming, you know, the first in lots of different areas across the university um, and have gone on to have very successful careers. And so that will, the Friday night event, we will highlight some of those accomplishments um, as well.
1: In your role, what is your goal and what things are you pinpointing to improve?
0: So, um, you know, I, I, I think this this celebration for me really was an opportunity to reflect on, you know, what are the, what are the ways in which we have lived up to that mission, right, of of creating um, access and opportunity for all students, particularly in the state of Mississippi, and so our goals um, as the um, institution, as the chief diversity officer, we have outlined uh, our goals in our foundational institutional diversity plan, Pathways to Equity, um, and so we have really spent a lot of time looking at the climate, so the experiences of our students, faculty, and staff. That they have living, working, and um, learning on the university's campus, and um, what you know really understanding what are some of those barriers to their success and have identified goals um, and action items to start to address those, and so particularly re- related to retention, graduation, um student success, um create creating more. Uh, faculty uh, diversity, uh, staff diversity, so really being intentional about that work, uh, more cohort-based mentoring student success programs. We know that those models work, and it helps students get to the finish line. And so those are some of the things that we are really strategically working up towards uh, currently. There's a scholarship. Uh, there is. The James Meredith Legacy Scholarship, Dr. Stephen Blake, um, is an alum, an accomplished alum, who um, has helped establish a scholarship, and so we um, will make it a fundraising priority for this year as a part of the 60th anniversary. And our hope is to start awarding that scholarship in fall of 2024, um, and it'll you know essentially cover all of a student's tuition and living expenses, um, particularly targeting students in the Mississippi Delta. And in Mr. Meredith's um, hometown, hometown, um, Italic County. Um, and so, at the event t- tonight, the late, the signature event tonight, there will also be a series of other special um, recognitions um, from the City of Oxford, from um, the U.S. Marshals, from the College of Liberal Arts, and from the black- from the University as well, and from the Black faculty and staff. Um, Organization and the Black Student Union, so there will be some other special announcements that are made during the event.
1: Dr. Sean Buddha Mead, Vice Chancellor for Diversity and Community Engagement with the University of Mississippi, we appreciate your time very much. I really
0: appreciate your 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 um, sharing, you know, and promoting, and we certainly most events are open and free and um, to the public, and so everyone is welcome to take part in the celebration. So thank you.
1: Coming up, the latest on hundreds of lawsuits over lead exposure that have piled up against the city of Jackson and state leadership in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The collapse of Jackson's water system earlier this month made headlines all over the world. But for residents, this is just the most recent example of water infrastructure issues that have plagued the city. Hundreds of lawsuits over lead exposure have piled up in the last year. From the Gulf States newsroom, Danny McArthur has the latest.
2: A citywide boil water notice was lifted a little over a week ago. Before that, a failure at the city's main water treatment plant meant many residents didn't have water at all. Add in flooding, and you've got thousands going seven weeks without access to clean water. And Nikki Martin is tired of it.
0: These past few years has been the worst of being here this long.
2: Recently, Martin joined hundreds of other parents and their kids at the Mississippi Children's Museum for an update on another problem the status of hundreds of lawsuits filed against city and state leaders for exposing them to lead. Martin has lived in Jackson for decades. It's where she is raising her two kids, who are 8 and 14 years old. But the city's recent water troubles have made her rethink calling Jackson home.
3: The water is the reason why I don't even want to buy a house here in Jackson.
2: The lawsuits were first filed in 2021. They've grown to include about 1,800 kids, who attorneys say have been exposed to lead by the city's water system. The lawsuits seek legal relief and damages, but Martin wants one thing. I just
0: want a solution, that's all. But Corey
2: Stern, one of the lawyers handling the lead lawsuits, says it can take years to resolve water quality problems in court. Stern was part of the legal team that successfully sued in Flint, Michigan. It's a community that, like Jackson, has made international headlines for its poor city water systems. He sees parallels both cities experience high rates of poverty.
0: Communities that that struggle financially always have the least amount of resources. They always have the least amount of people advocating for
2: them. Jackson's crumbling water infrastructure will cost billions to fix. That's money city leaders say they just don't have. And there are similar environmental justice issues playing out in communities across the Gulf South. Last year, A federal civil rights investigation was opened in Lowndes County, Alabama. Residents, who are largely black, have been dealing with raw sewage backing up into their homes and pooling into their yards for years. Investigators there are trying to figure out if they have been discriminated against by the county and the state. And in Louisiana, the majority black residents of a former public housing project in Tremay are still dealing with the repercussions of years of lead exposure. The city took two decades to settle a case accusing its housing authority of causing the problem. Stern says these communities are susceptible to harm because the city governments are juggling so many issues.
0: If you live in a community like Flint where the murder rate is the highest in the state, do you put your money into lead and water when you can't even see it or taste it or know it?
2: And Stern doesn't think systemic failures are always intentional.
0: I don't think someone got in an office and said, let's poison the heck out of Jackson. But, but the folks in Jackson are a victim of circumstances that in many ways are beyond their control, and
2: it's the same in Flint. Stern hopes the Jackson lawsuits won't take as much time to be resolved as in Flint. Committee members there waited for seven years. Earlier this month, during the height of Jackson's current water crisis, Michael Regan, the administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency, visited Jackson. He highlighted yet another issue, climate change. Extreme weather will be even harder for cities with fragile water systems to deal with.
3: We have to be able to look at the repairs that need to take place on a normal basis, but we also have to begin to make investments to ensure that not only we build functioning water systems, but that they are more resilient to the types of
2: storms that we're seeing uh, as we move forward. But getting cities like Jackson to plan for climate change is a big ask, especially as the list of water-related lawsuits continues to grow. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur.
1: Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama. Coming up, looking back on a historic sit-in at Delta State University. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, "Eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere.
1: The real estate agent and former school teacher wouldn't even tell her students where she went to college. But over time, after a friend of her daughter's came across photos of a 1969 sit-in at Delta State College, she began to open up. Crawford was one of the first black students to enroll at the then all-white Delta State. And as part of the black student organization, she organized a sit-in at the president's office. Her experiences are now chronicled in a new documentary. Voices from the Delta State Sit-In. It's being screened today at the two Mississippi museums as part of the History is Lunch series for the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Ahead of today's event, Crawford talked to us and shared more about her time at Delta State.
3: We felt like we were being treated differently. In fact, we were. The N-word was used in the classroom by some of the teachers. And uh, I lived in the dormitory. And even in the dormitory, they strategically placed us next to the dorm matron to watch us. And why, I don't know. We were just trying to go to school. But a number of things were going on. We didn't have any black teachers. We didn't have any uh books in the library that were authored by black people. We wanted um, a black history course taught at the college. And we wanted black instructors. Also, we had problems, and there were no black counselors. It was just a lot of things going on, and we just, we just got tired of it.
1: You felt slighted?
3: Oh, most definitely. And we tried to do some things like we protested, we sang around the flagpole, and we marched in front of the president. Uh Of the college President Urine's house, and we had signs and things and finally, they were just ignoring us, and so we decided to go and sit in uh at the
1: president's office so at this sit in, how was that received by the president of the college? well, the university well, before you could get to his
3: office, there was a long hallway. So we sat in the hallway, and it was impossible for anybody to visit him with us sitting in the hallway. He was in his office with the door closed, and we were sitting in the hallway. And then finally, somebody came out who said that we had to leave or they were going to do something about it. And we listened. And we were very quiet and respectful. We didn't say anything. We listened to what he said, but nobody moved. And after nobody moved, they called the highway patrolmen and the policemen and all of those people who they had out there. And they had a big bus that they were going to load us on. We didn't know where we were going. Were you arrested? Well, they didn't say we were under arrest. They just told us to get in, and uh, we complied because we had all of those highway patrolmen with those tall billy sticks, ride gear helmets, and and weapons, lots of weapons, and so we just quietly complied, and as we were getting on the bus, there was this uh, white guy, named Thomas Robert Fullerton, who was the son of a a preacher in Greenville. And he said, wait, if you take them, you'll have to take me too. And they they called him up and threw him on in with us. (laughs) And they took us to Parchman. At first, we we didn't know where we were going, and everybody was whispering where they taking taken us. And finally, we realized we were headed toward the penitentiary.
1: How long were you there?
3: Just a few days. Uh, It seemed like forever. But I remember very distinctly, the warden at that time was Mr. Thickpen, and he greeted us. And he said, look, I'm not in favor of you being here but since you're here let's make the most of it he said the first thing we'll have to do is get you searched and then we'll get you in the cells <laughs> so they they searched us and they put us in cell and then they locked us in and Mr. Pigpin came down later and announced to us there's need, no need in you being in the cells we'll just pretend that you're having a big pajama party. I'm opening the cell. You can put the mattresses on the floor, and here are some cards. You can play cards. So that's what we did, and we sang freedom songs.
1: Were you scared? What did you think about this?
3: I was very young, and the climate in the United States was a lot of uh, civil unrest and a lot of things that were happening at the various colleges. And I was young and I was just thinking, well, we are just doing what we have to do and I'm not afraid.
1: And I was not afraid. Now I've heard before of students being taken to Parchin Penitentiary and mistreated your experience. It seemed like the warden was sympathetic to you.
3: Yes, he was. he, we understand that he had been told that it was a potential volatile situation and to make sure nothing happened to us. And so what he did was he put us on death row with the death row inmates. And I had the distinct pleasure, and I'll call it pleasure, of working uh, at the penitentiary as a counselor, from 1983 to 1986, and I was a counselor for death row
1: inmates. And that meant a lot to you.
3: That meant a lot to me, and this is what I found out. I found out that nobody is supposed to be locked up in the penitentiary except by court order, and we had not had a court order sentencing us to the penitentiary so we weren't we were there illegally and the and the water knew that
1: but there were no repercussions as a result of that
3: no because we didn't know we didn't know i didn't i found that out years later we didn't know
1: so now you have a documentary about what occurred your history is mississippi's history is delta state university is integration history you sh- you must be proud well i would say and i and and and
3: i i don't want to say it's me because it was our group it was not me it was our group but i'm proud that i took a stand but i think that we did what any person who felt like they were oppressed would do and i was proud of the fact that we did it nonviolently.
1: Well, Maggie Crawford, retired teacher, counselor, and now you are a real estate owner. May I ask how old you are? Yes, ma'am. I'm 74. Okay, a young 74 and very active, and you're going to be speaking for Mississippi Department of Archives and History at the History is Lunch today at noon. Yes, ma'am. There's a lot to unpack there, and I'm sure the audience is going to be very interested in, in hearing your story and the story of those who are with you.
3: Well, I certainly hope that it will shed light on things that happened years and years ago because the people who doesn't know his history is doomed to repeat it.
1: Thank you so much, Ms. Crawford. We appreciate your time and speaking with us.
3: Yes, and thank you. For-
1: this has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.